Hi, Michael Isagoff here. I'm the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, the co-host of Skullduggery, and the host of the podcast Conspiracy Land, a six-part deep dive into the unsolved murder of DNC staff member Seth Rich. I'm excited to say that Conspiracy Land has just been nominated for Best Documentary Podcast by the Webby Awards. This is where you, our Skullduggery listeners, come in. You can vote for Conspiracy Land to win the People's Voice Award for Best Documentary Podcast. All you have to do is head over to thewebbyawards.com. That's thewebbyawards.com. Search Conspiracy Land and place your vote. And if you haven't heard the podcast, what are you waiting for? It's just been nominated for Best Documentary Podcast. Thewebbyawards.com. Search Conspiracy Land and let's vote this thing to victory. No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. That was former Vice President Joe Biden speaking Friday on MSNBC's Morning Joe, forcefully denying that he ever sexually assaulted former staffer Tara Reid 27 years ago. It was the first time Biden has directly addressed the allegations, which have increasingly dogged his campaign. But will his denials quell the controversy, especially over the charge of hypocrisy that he and virtually all other leading Democrats were only too willing to embrace, that he and virtually all other leading Democrats were only too willing to embrace uncorroborated sexual misconduct charges against Brett Kavanaugh by Christine Blasey Ford, but now insists Reed's allegation should be dismissed. And what about Biden's call for the release of records from the National Archives? Does the archives even have them? We'll discuss, and we'll also talk to Yahoo News Bureau Chief Sharon Weinberger about her night at the Trump Hotel, and to Samantha Power, the former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, we all were glued to our TV Friday morning watching Joe Biden for the first time address the Tara Reid allegations. And uh, clearly a lot is writing about how people perceive his denial that any of her claims are true. I think that he did a credible job, but not necessarily an overwhelmingly persuasive one. And I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. But that's my take. What's yours? Yeah, he was unequivocal. He said it didn't happen over and over and over again. And what's striking to me is he did not leave really any room at all for anything, you know, ambiguous, anything that could have been interpreted differently. He just said this thing or anything like it did not happen. He even questioned 
whether there was a complaint at all. So either he is right about it, it didn't happen, or he, you know, thinks that, uh, you know, this complaint, new evidence will never surface. But uh, there's uh, there's just not a lot of... Uh, not a lot of wiggle room? Wig- uh, there, there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of wiggle room. Um, yeah. You know, well, I look, think there's we're... A- I was just going to say that I, I, I think the problem with the statement and, you know, it makes me wonder about all the preparation that went into it before he actually gave the interview was all of these questions about the existence of this uh, complaint and whether it could still possibly be at the universe at the University of Delaware. He just didn't give any ground there in terms of allowing for any kind of search at all. And then I think, as you have now reported, there are also questions about whether the archives would keep a complaint like this, which he emphatically said, if there was a complaint, that's where they would, that's where it would reside. Yeah, the, the question is whether the archives is the repository for, for records from the Senate Office of Fair Employment Practices, which is now not its current name. I think it's the Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. Uh, it's changed its name. But uh, when I spoke to the archives today, they initially told me they have no such records. They've since put out a statement saying that any such records would be under the control of the Senate, not the archives. My understanding is that it is possible that Congress has leased some space from the archives and stored some records there that might include the records from the Office of uh, Fair Employment Practices, but that the archives does not have records of those records. The files would be totally under the control, custody of the Secretary of the Senate, and that it's or the, under the Senate, and they don't have any ability to search the Senate records. They don't even have a record of having of which records from the Senate they've got. So, you know, it does raise the question why the Biden campaign would put so much on the National Archives uh, without first sussing out whether, in fact, the archives actually has such records. Although one other detail I do want to mention here, and it could be significant, is that Reid has since said or clarified to Business Insider that her complaint did not include the allegation of sexual assault. It was a sexual harassment complaint about her treatment at the office. Yeah, it is significant because now you have two times in which Tara Reid came forward to make an allegation against the vice president the first time after the incident happened in 1993. But then again, about a year ago, when other women had come forward and said that Joe Biden had touched them in ways that made them feel uh, uncomfortable, even if it wasn't uh, in any way explicitly sexual. She came forward. She said a similar thing. She did not bring up the sexual assault. So it does raise questions why on multiple occasions would she come forward, make one allegation that's milder, and then follow it up with um, a, a, a very serious allegation of sexual assault. 
Yeah, look, reasonable questions to ask, uh, not uh, dispositive, but certainly reasonable to ask. I well, think I, I wanted to ask you actually, Mike, because yeah. you you actually earlier this week you spoke to Tara Reid. Uh, I did. So you I have did. some sense of her. What was that conversation? Well, when like? I spoke to her, it was um, I think it was Tuesday night, a couple nights ago, and she was uh, quite upset that because this was the day that uh, Senator Gillibrand and Hillary Clinton and uh, Amy Klobuchar all came out and said they stand by Joe Biden and do not believe the incident that she alleges took place. And, um, you know, given the track record of uh, people in particular like Gillibrand, who was so forceful in demanding that Al Franken uh, resign from the Senate and Klobuchar, who, along with uh, uh, Kamala Harris, was so forceful in opposing Brett Kavanaugh, largely because of the Christine Blasey Ford allegations, uh, it struck her as um, hypocritical on their part, to simply dismiss her very serious allegations. She hasn't been interviewed by any of these people. She hasn't been questioned. Uh, They haven't asked, none of the senators have asked for a full-scale investigation of Tara Reid's complaints, so they are simply dismissing them as not credible. Who would conduct an investigation? Nobody, nobody. But, I mean, I, you know, there isn't. Yeah. I mean, I I threw that out only because, you know, so many were so forceful in demanding an, a full FBI investigation of the Kavanaugh charges. Now, of course, in that case, he was up for Senate confirmation. Right. So the FBI had a role in this case. No, but but, you know, in terms of sort of more broadly fitness for office, it applies to a uh, somebody running for president uh, as well as somebody up for confirmation for the Supreme Court. You know, is there conduct in their past that deserves to be aired and vetted and evaluated? And um, I think the answer is that if it's serious enough to derail somebody's qualifications for the Supreme Court, it's equally serious to uh, be examined in terms of uh, somebody running for president. That's not an endorsement of Tara Reid's allegations. They seem, you know, the evidence right now cuts in different ways, but certainly the additional evidence we've learned over the past week that she did in the 1990s tell others about a sexual assault by Biden is an important piece of evidence. Yeah. And it seems to me that there will be a lot of news organizations continuing uh, to report out this story. I think one of them is going to be the New York Times because they were not very happy that the, that the Biden campaign went out with talking points suggesting that uh, the Times investigation essentially exonerated terror or at least didn't you know corroborate any 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 of the allegations at all. And so they're going to have an incentive to go out and aggressively report this. Others will as well. You know as well as anybody that these are uh, extremely difficult cases to prove. And I still think that absent this complaint you know, reappearing, and even if it does, as, as we've just talked about, it did not allege sexual assault, you're going to have to probably see 
more cases out there, you know, suggestions that that there's some sort of a pattern of of uh, conduct here, because in isolation, even if more witnesses come forward. Uh, I just think it's going to be hard for this to to stick. I don't know. What do you think of the well? Look, I, I do. Th- yeah. Uh, look, I the Biden uh, uh, performance was you know okay, but you know I don't think it's going to uh, change the ball game. I, I, I do think, think I think what was I think what was important about the Biden performance. It's not that it was he was a little rocky. You know, he doesn't give the most polished interview interviews uh, as, as we have now become accustomed to. He stumbles, he forgets things, but he did subject himself to a pretty tough interview. You know, Mika Brzezinski went at him pretty hard over and over again. There are questions that I would have asked that she didn't ask, but it particularly on, uh, you know, why he hasn't come forward, why he is not going to release the documents and other other matters. And I think the optics of that for a lot of people are going to be, well, okay, you know, we don't know the whole story here, but he was willing to put himself up, you know, to that kind of scrutiny. And so that he probably did himself pretty well doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I did not find his answers on uh, why he won't authorize a search of uh, the University of Delaware records uh, terribly persuasive. But look, I think a lot more is going to depend on Reed herself. Uh, she, We believe she is um, may appear on one of the Sunday talk shows this weekend, uh, most likely Fox, um, Chris Wallace, who can be a very tough interviewer. And I think how she comes across in that, if she does it, will be a lot more influential in the future course of this story than Biden's comments today. So we'll just have to see. Although uh, one other detail that she did share with me, uh, which is that uh, she has been talking. We know she's been talking to this guy, Rick McHugh from Business Insider, who worked with Ronan Farrow on the original Harvey Weinstein story at NBC that NBC refused to air. But she also said Ronan Farrow himself has been in touch with her and is working on a story and given his track record and his prominence in this field, I think a lot of people are going to be looking closely to where he comes down on this. And that would be in the New Yorker. uh, And that would be in the New Yorker and it would be incredibly influential. So if I were the Biden campaign, I'd be uh, more worried about Ronan Farrow right now than, uh, uh, than anybody else. But you know, we just on um, the, and on the politics of this, what does Biden do? You know, he, these questions aren't going to completely go away. Uh, they could continue to, to kind of cloud his message. You know, if he gives interviews, he is uh, likely to get continue to get questions about it. There have been some suggestion that maybe um, given his record fighting against sexual violence and, and other forms of, of discrimination against women, that uh, maybe he should give some kind of a big speech you know, addressing those issues and and reminding people the extent to which he's fought for the safety and security of women. I don't know what you think about that. And and also, what has the reaction been from some of these women groups who were getting who were putting pressure on him to finally deal with this issue? Right. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see. But I do want to say that um, the danger for Biden here is if more and more details dribble out that 
might lend support to her story. Other corroborators, any any evidence that she did indeed file a complaint, anything else that gives the story oxygen, because it's pretty clear. Look, Biden didn't want to do an interview about this. He had to now. He did it. I'm sure from the Biden campaign's perspective, uh, it's going to be asked and answered. We don't have to address this anymore. And uh, they might get away with that if new details don't dribble out. But if they do, he will be unable to give an interview without getting asked again about anything new that comes up on this front. And that is a problem for him because then yeah, he gets, you know, basically he'll be unable to talk about all the issues he wants to talk about because he's going to get hounded with questions about Tara Reid. Now, if nothing else comes forward, if no other details or if other details come forward that undercut her story, then he gets away with it. But it's impossible to say at this point. The one thing I will say that maybe could cut uh, in his favor going forward is, you know how these cycles work with the media. People will be covering this story for a while. At a certain point, there's going to be a a backlash and the media is going to start going after Trump on the dozen or so women who he who have alleged that he sexually assaulted and in one case I think actually raped. So this is uh, going to be tricky for for the Trump campaign as well, and uh, it's going to be messy and ugly as yeah. we go. As we go I mean, I, I do have to say it is somewhat amusing to hear the Trump campaign surrogates pushing the Reid story. I am on the email list of the National Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, and they are sending out emails about every single House Democrat and every single House Democratic congressional candidate pointing to their comments about uh, Brett Kavanaugh and um, asking them to explain why they would say that about Kavanaugh but stand behind Joe Biden. Uh, So clearly, which is a bit rich for um, House Republicans to do, but, uh, you know, all's fair in uh, love and war and politics. And uh, so it is with this case. Anyway, we've got a couple of good guests here, starting out with our distinguished Washington bureau chief. So let's get to it. Okay, we are now joined by Sharon Weinberger, uh, Yahoo News' Washington bureau chief. And we're talking to Sharon about four hours after the interview that Vice President Joe Biden did on Morning Joe, his first comments on the uh, sexual assault allegation by uh, Tara Reid. And so we're going to want to kind of dig into Biden's comments, the fallout from that, where that story is going, and then... We're going to talk to Sharon about a really terrific, kind of fascinating story that she did for Yahoo News uh, that came out earlier this week. We sent Sharon and um, Jana Winter, another Yahoo News reporter, to go spend the night at the Trump International Hotel. So while we were all hunkering down in our lockdown uh, lives, uh, Sharon was uh, Sharon and Jana we're, uh, we're living it up at the uh, Trump Internet, five-star Trump International Hotel, uh, actually on Yahoo News' dime. But I'm an extremely generous editor, so uh, 
There is so a, then I'll there book a, a room tonight. To, <laughs> <laughs> not you. As I could use a if break. You can, if, you, if you can bring back the kind of reporting that Sharon and Jana did, which I don't think you necessarily can, then I would I'd, uh, I'd, I'd bankroll Ooh. it. But uh, it is a, a fascinating and kind of surreal uh, story and experience they had. And there is also a more serious dimension to it. So we'll get to that in a minute. But let's start with Biden. Sharon, you watched uh, the interview this morning and you tweeted not long after it that the idea that Joe Biden is not going to be able to release his uh, Senate papers that are now under lock and key at the University of uh, Delaware is not sustainable. Talk about that. Well, he was pressed repeatedly on this in the interview. And of course, the the background to this is that Tara Reid says that she made a complaint, not about assault, but about sexual harassment in his office. Um, So if this complaint was made and if it exists, it would be in one of two places, in either the National Archives, which I believe is said they're doing a search for it, or in his uh, papers from his time in the Senate, which are now at the University of Delaware, that he is not allowing to be released until two years after he's left public office. So he was asked quite firmly during the interview, what about having whether it's an independent party or a commission, do a search for Tara Reid in those papers at the University of Delaware. And he kept saying no without giving a, a reason for it. And I don't think that's going to be sustainable. Just like Bloomberg um, repeatedly faced questions about releasing women from NDAs they had with his company, I think that issue of his papers at, at the University of Delaware is going to keep coming up. Look, I couldn't agree more. Uh, What he said was that the personnel records are not in those files at the uh, University of Delaware. They would be in the National Archives. That remains to be seen. But to me, listening to Biden talking, this goes well beyond Tara Reid. Why should any of Biden's Senate records be under lock and key while he's running for president. It seems to me that, uh, you know, transparency would dictate for all these files to be open. The only reason they're not is because Congress exempted itself from the Freedom of Information Act that applies to federal (laughs) offices, yet Congress somehow is exempt, and that exemption looms even larger when a senator or member of Congress is running for president. Well, you know why. <laughs> you're, you're the reason that Biden doesn't want those papers to be released. Yeah, because, uh, because he doesn't want, be, want well, people because, like because, me looking at them. Right, but, because, well, it's not, I mean, you're the one who will ultimately get them, but the first thing that's going to happen is the Trump campaign We'll have people pouring over the 28,000 boxes or whatever it is that, that are there and and uh, looking for oppo research, with, which they will then leak to you, I hope. Well, it, it, well, so, well, I mean, just in terms of, all, of like why this that, hasn't happened, is, it hasn't happened that, because candidates have a strong political interest in not letting it happen. <laughs> Also, it's not unique. If you look back at what Bill Clinton did with his records uh, as governor, and also George W. Bush, they also both fought and manipulated in some ways to keep those records under lock and key. So even though that's not a federal office, I mean, there's a long precedent of those who have held public office not wanting those papers to be public. Not a precedent that we as journalists approve of. And I'm just a little, you know, surprised at the blase 
attitude the two of you have towards this because it seems to me this is fundamental to what we do. Yes, oppo research people can get hold of records. They can get hold of all sorts of records. No, no, you're and misunderstanding me, Mike. I, I, told, yeah. I, I want them to be just as public as you want them to be. I, I'm just right. I'm just talking about why over the course of you know all of these decades, for the most part, they haven't been made public because candidates have zero interest in laying out their entire you know professional records, particularly you know stuff that they never expected to see the light of day. So I'm trying to explain why well, there may candid- be reasons. Candidates beyond- have zero interest in us learning anything about them that <laughs> yeah. is not part of their official spin exactly. as candidates. Exactly. But, but that but, doesn't but, us. The, but the, the only can- other point about this is that yeah. for those who think that Biden is not opening up these records for the sole reason that they may corroborate the Tara Reid story, there may well and you know could be other reasons, which is that they see this as a trap and an opportunity for the Trump campaign to gather large amounts of oppo research that will be damaging to them. Now, the, can the I, can question, I just let, say, me, let me just let me just say maybe one other quick point that, right. that, that Sharon raised, which is the idea, and I think Mika Brzezinski asked, actually asked Biden about this, but he kind of ignored it, the idea of setting up some kind of a panel or commission that would go in there and, and look at the records, you know, a kind of a surgical, tailored search for anything having to do with Tara Reid. These records, I understand, are not digitized. There's, you know, you know, tens of thousands of boxes of records there. So that might be a really hard thing to do. But I think the Biden campaign should be asked about that, because if they're not willing to just turn over anything having to do with Tara Reid, that raises questions about why they're resisting so strongly. Yeah, I mean, what struck me as, you know, in in watching Biden this morning is, you know, he says, well, these records have all sorts of things like my meetings with Putin and why is that something we shouldn't see? It seems to me that when you're talking about Biden's interactions with world leaders and he's running for president, that would be the kind of material that should absolutely be uh, publicly available for Well, I disagree that this is hard. It's not hard. She was employed in the office in certain years. Those boxes probably already are categorized to some extent by years. And this is what archivists do. They go through every single piece of paper. When these are available, you'll see um, a finding aid that will say what's in every box, what subjects. This is what archivists do all the time. It's not that hard to go through a limited number of boxes for any mention of her name, regardless of where the personnel records are. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And I think the Biden campaign should be pressed on that very point. I mean, why shouldn't there be at least a search. Why should we, you know, do we need to take it at his word that there's nothing in there involving Tara Reid? They ought to be pressed on that. All right. Well, you two seem to be coming around to where I am, so I'll uh, <laughs> I'll take that as a, a, a modest victory for my arguments here. Although I do want to just make the point that, in my view, this is broader, much broader than 
Tara Reid that I think all those records should be it, yes and and and, and Trump and, and Trump should release his tax records right absolutely yeah. I don't I don't <laughs> but that's think not happening have, <laughs> that's not happening no, but some the of us idea, live in, some of us live in the real world Isakoff I know well you know Matt Miller testified our you know frequent skullduggery de- guest former uh, flack for Eric Holder at the Justice Department saying Biden should say I'm not going to release anything until Trump releases releases his tax records and all the other records that he's concealing to which the response is, is that the standard? We want to be brought down to the standard, the stonewalling standard of Donald Trump. I got to say, I'm tired of, I'm tired, I'm tired of the uh, unilateral disarm. Yeah. That argument. I mean, yeah, maybe you should unilaterally disarm. Maybe you should do the right thing. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Speaking of doing the right thing, Sharon went to uh, the Trump Hotel. I don't know why that's the right thing, but tell us why, well, Sharon, I- you and a colleague risked your life to go into the hotel open for business uh, during a time when we should all be shunning places of business. Oh, the hardship of a five-star hotel with room service. <laughs> well, yeah. I, so it actually started just as curiosity. I, I mean, obviously, all of the hotels in D.C. that remain open have been hard hit. So I started looking at the rates, uh, you know, how expensive is it to stay at the Trump International Hotel during the pandemic to see if the rates had come down drastically. And in fact, they had not. They're pretty standard for what they've been throughout the year, which is the very lowest price room starts at $400 plus tax and goes up rapidly up to the suites that go well over $1,000 a night. What was your room? How much was your room? So our room, which was two, we were um, worried about the, the auditors, of course. So we split a room with two queen beds, an executive room, which was $615 a night plus taxes and included breakfast. So, you know, for the Trump Hotel, it wasn't a bad deal. God. I hope that I hope the Yahoo bean counters aren't listening to this. But wait, wait a second. Are the restaurants open? Are were you able to get breakfast? So they have a limited dining room, a limited in-room service menu. Um, the the BLT Prime, the steakhouse is closed. The sushi restaurant is closed. All of the restaurants are closed, but they have a limited you know, room service menu. That was actually really quite delicious. All right. So Sharon, I want you to to kind of describe the sort of surreal scene in this uh, nearly empty, you know, hotel that's usually filled with like, you know, GOP movers and shakers and Trump glitterati. But to set this up, I just want to read a couple of sentences from the story that I loved. Okay, so you write, if we imagined we'd be like Eloise at the plaza under the lockdown, the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. is more like a scenes from Cheers in hell. So explain that. So I think the first indication that something was going to be really weird about staying in this near empty hotel was you 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 show up and you know normally you you walk in but they do because all of the the bar the restaurants are closed they only let you in if you have a room reservation so I go to the usual entrance and a security guard rather than one of the usual doormen opens the door looks at me and says hello miss Weinberger <laughs> and I'm like oh <laughs> So they recognize me or I am the only one with a reservation that evening. And I think it was much more likely the latter. So you go in and I I thought, you know, maybe Giuliani's there. He, in fact, we found out is not, you know, that there are surely some of these longtime people living there who are staying or sort of GOP Trump MAGA people. Um, In fact, there was really almost no one. 
there were some people who appeared to check in shortly after midnight. We trolled Instagram posts. Um, Clay Higgins appeared to have stayed there the night before, along with a reality star. Clay uh, Higgins being a... Uh, the Republican congressman, congressman from Louisiana, who has been a very anti-lockdown person <laughs> and has been lobbying for the Open Up America. So, you know, you're in this hotel that is just, you know, empty. You see almost no one except a few staff that they've kept on. You know, you can sit. You know, so the joke about Cheers was, yeah, you can sit in the lobby bar, but you can't order drinks and you can't drink there. And, you know, everyone is sort of, they know who you are. You're one of, you know, we, we don't know. We know that we were the only people on our floor and we were on the fifth floor. There were nobody on the floors above us. Uh, we were told that some of the suites were occupied, whether that was one, two, or three, we don't know. And we didn't see any other guests other than um, a couple people who checked in after midnight. And I take it you didn't see any uh, foreign government officials or foreigners at the hotel either? No Saudi princes. No, no. And so we were told, so Jonna interviewed Harlan Hill, uh, one of the Trump campaign advisors and a Republican strategist. He had stayed there with his girlfriend literally just the night before us. So she interviewed him afterwards. He said Rudy Giuliani has been home, and that appears to be the case from his tweets, has not been, he, you know, he was a regular at the bar, regular at the hotel. He has not been there. Um, there are allegations that uh, perhaps a commercial sex worker uh, stayed there. This was in the 1100 pen newsletter that journalist Zach Everson runs, who through Instagram posts was able to chase it down. We, we saw not on our night there, but one can track through Instagram posts that perhaps that did happen. Well, wait a second, because Zach Everson has been on Skullduggery and he is a uh, diligent researcher. Did he, in fact, establish that a professional sex worker was staying at the hotel? Yeah. So he went through the, you know, so basically you can search by location. And that's how we saw that Clay Higgins had stayed there. People who have stayed there in the past, you know, whatever week and have posted there. So there was um, a very attractive woman who posted pictures and video of herself at the Trump Hotel from the week before we stayed there. And through her Instagram posts, you can identify her and that she is also a dancer at a local strip club. Huh. I think we should have her as a guest on Skullduggery. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. right. I should add that the Trump International Hotel strongly cautioned us <laughs> against these baseless allegations. But you can, I mean, we, we also double checked and tracked with the Instagram post. So, I mean, it does appear that she did stay there or at least posted pictures of herself there and certainly does appear to be a worker at a local strip club. That's what we can say. Well, we're we're, going to get on the case. Yes. Sharon, there's kind of a a more serious backdrop to this story, which is that while all this is going on, the Trump, and in fact, Eric Trump himself, who I guess runs the, the Trump business, is trying to get kind of better, more favorable terms from the, the government lease, from the GSA during this pandemic, as other businesses and, and um, you know hotels presumably have been able to, to get. But that also raises the possibility of conflicts of interest, right? 
Well, yeah, I mean, this has been the point of the Trump Hotel from the start of the Trump presidency. It's an inherent conflict of interest. The other piece of news that came out the other day through the Washington Post was that Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, had been staying there for months, you know, paying his own money. But then the Secret Service, to protect him, had paid taxpayer dollars to, to stay there for months at a time. So, you know, and there, there are dozens of these cases with the Trump Hotel. But the flip side of that is that question that you brought up. I mean, the Trump International Hotel, and that was the point of our reporting, it is hurting. You know, it is not, not only is it not filled, you know, as you just said, it's cheers in hell. You're kind of the only ones there. And it's not totally illegitimate for a business being hurt by the pandemic to ask for relief of some kind from its lease through the federal government, handled in this case by the GSA. But there's inherent conflict. Trump organization asking a government run by Trump for rent relief. And, and how do you handle that? Um, you know, GSA, I, I was actually quite surprised. You know, I went to them multiple times a day for several days. They did not even respond or acknowledge. I went to multiple people at GSA. They, they did not even acknowledge that I put the request in. I, and I actually find that sort of shocking and insulting for a government agency. You know, House Democrats are now demanding rightfully demanding records and information. What are the status of these negotiations or talks between GSA and the Trump organization? I don't think it's illegitimate per se for the Trump organization to ask for rent relief that GSA may be giving other organizations, but then there has to be transparency. What is that relief? What kind of relief? What's appropriate? And, how, and you can't resolve. I mean, there's no way to resolve that fundamental conflict of interest that, it, or that a company that the president has an interest in, a commercial interest in, a business interest, is asking his government for rent relief. I don't, I don't know how one resolves that. But they, they have said, correct me if I'm wrong, they're not going to apply for any of the business stimulus checks that are available under the COVID package, right? They are excluded. That was part of the of the congressional uh, negotiations. They're excluded from stimulus. I right. believe they can, but have not applied for. And I, I think we need a better expert than me on that. I don't believe they've applied for PPP. I think they've said that. But rent, I mean, the point is any sort of relief Funding. I mean, if you get rent relief from the federal government, that that is a form of relief or help. And I'm not saying they don't deserve it. My heart goes out. I mean, the staff who were there were wonderful to us. Um, it appears, although they wouldn't they wouldn't tell us who they furloughed, who they've laid off. But you know, I you know, it's my heart goes out to the staff. But I, I don't know how you resolve that problem. Well, tell us a little bit about the staff, by the way, because you you had encounters with people who work there, including the uh, general manager of the hotel, a man named uh, Michael Damlicourt. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. So what kind of interactions did you have with people who actually work there? What did they tell you? What is it like to work there these days? So um, I think going back to your earlier question, the most surreal moment was shortly after we checked in, you know, we could hear because the, the, the corridors overlook, they're open corridors that overlook the main lobby and bar. And so we realized shortly after we checked in that the Trump daily briefing, the Trump show was on TV. And so we looked down and who do we see? But the, the only person in the lobby bar is the Trump general manager, Michael, who's sort of, you know, he's very, he's just, you know, he is focused on his computer. It looked like he was looking at spreadsheets. He was not looking at the TV screen. So, you know, we asked, like, is it all right if we go down and watch the TVs during the, the briefing? And they said, fine, just socially distance. 
And so, you know, we sat there, us on one side and Michael on the other, you know, as Trump is speaking to this, his empty hotel about how things are going to reopen. So there's this moment like you're looking, you know, Trump is saying things are going to reopen, things are great. And you're looking around and you see sort of a depressed looking manager looking at numbers on a spreadsheet and you're alone in this lobby <laughs> bar. Are they wearing uh, masks? Yes. Yeah. So I, and I really will. I, I People make fun, and, and rightfully so, of the Trump Hotel on many levels. But I will say that the staff were lovely from, you know, you, they had, and it's a very small staff right now. It is a person, you know, at the front desk. They don't have the doorman anymore. They appear to have a security guard who lets people in. You know, they have room service staff. They have turndown service and cleaners. So it's a small staff, but they are still very attentive to guests. You know, it's not hard to be attentive to guests when you only have a few of them. And, you know, we, we you know, the staff, I think, are grateful to have their jobs. They're very closed-lipped, uh, appropriately so. I mean, they would sort of indicate general things and make polite conversation, but they knew who we were, and they weren't going to reveal identities of, of guests. Nobody would talk about exact occupancy. We were just told, oh, it's uh, slower than we would like. <laughs> Yeah, I'll say. Now, the um, the question about uh, look, the as you point out, there, there is this inherent conflict here. Of it's a company owned by the president of the United States that is doing business with the federal government. Inevitably, the issue that we're flagging here, there is no resolution to it. It would seem on its face that the federal government shouldn't be doing anything to assist a company owned by the president. On the other hand, should a company owned by the president be treated differently than other companies? Well, maybe this is sort of you sow, you get what you sow. I forget the uh, metaphor. I mean, you know, had Trump truly divested himself from the hotel it could run itself as a business, even with, you know, perhaps with the Trump name. If, if the president did not have a financial interest in this hotel, it really could act like any business. It could, you know, could get stimulus funding or PPP or rent relief. So in a way, I, I feel like he shot himself in the foot. And, and the intriguing thing for me and the other thing we wanted to see going there is, so what is the future for this hotel? Um, before the pandemic, of course, there were reports that the Trump organization actually wanted to sell the lease and get out of this. And of course, the speculation was they wanted to sell while it was at its height. I mean, the attraction of the hotel during the Trump administration is that it is, I mean, that is the attraction. It's owned by the president. If you're a foreign lobbyist, lobbyist, you're Mnuchin, and wanting, you know, if you are someone who wants to stay in favor of the president, what better than to hold your event at the hotel, to stay at the hotel? Um, so what is the future? At some point, D.C., like the rest of the country, will reopen. If you can't operate the bars and the restaurants like you once did, if it's not the hotspot it once was, what is its future? You know, I think Zach Everson, who specializes in reporting on the hotel, he thinks they'll be fine. Um, he thinks that once again, the Trump, you know, supporters will go there I, I don't know. I think with social distancing guidelines, they're going to be very limited in what they can do, like all hotels in terms of events. They're advantaged by the fact it is a very spacious bar, like lobby bar. They're better equipped than some other places to spread out. But I, I think they're like all businesses, they're going to be handicapped. I don't know. You know, a, a huge chunk of their business 
comes off the fact that Trump is president. I mean, it is the meeting place for anybody in Trump world. I've been to a, a number of events there, book parties, other kinds of parties, and it's, you know, all the Trump crowd, all people from the White House congregate there, as do lobbyists, as do foreign foreigners looking for contracts or other business from the federal government. So if Trump doesn't get reelected, I can't imagine that the hotel will be just fine or do anything like the kind of business it's done in the last few years. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, I think they're facing two calamities. The first that everyone faces, which is the pandemic, and then possibly two years of social distancing guidelines where there aren't going to be big events. They can't rent it out for book parties, for Trump, you know, whatever. And then the second will be if Trump loses in November, it's not going, as you've correctly pointed out, it's going to lose all of that business. Um, I think... the Trump organization is going to face a real problem financially. Uh, you know, we don't know the full extent of its finances, but it's it, something is going to happen. And I believe today rent was due. So what what, by the way, um, ha- has Trump said anything about uh, about his property in, in Washington? Has he been asked about it? I don't believe he has been asked about it yet. I'm sure he will soon, particularly with these latest reports about Mnuchin. And then, you know, the Democrats are really starting to beat the drum on you know, what is going on with these negotiations with GSA. I, I, I'm still like, I'm in shock that they can't even, you know, they didn't even say no comment. They just didn't answer. And we should point out that the lawsuits that have been filed over the emoluments clause and whether the hotel and Trump businesses writ large are in violation of the emoluments clause, they are both still they are still winding their way to the courts. I think there's been some split rulings. Uh, One judge in federal judge in Maryland did issue a ruling that gave a green light for the lawsuit to proceed. That was overruled. And there are other lawsuits in the works, but we've gotten no definitive ruling from the courts on whether what Trump is doing here is constitutional or not. Yeah, I I think those will continue on. I don't know. I mean, it it seems like none of these lawsuits have really had an effect so far, but I don't know what their status is winding the way through the courts. I don't see this ending very well. I I think that's a third, as you pointed out, there's a third thing they're facing. So they have the pandemic, they have the fall election, and then they have these lawsuits. And I think there is going to be a day of reckoning somehow. Well, obviously, this is an ongoing story, Sharon. But um, I'm sorry to inform you that I'm not going to be able to make living in luxury hotels a regular part of your beat. For Skullduggery listeners, uh, we'll be staying on the story, but uh, maybe reporting uh, by phone. But not staying at the hotel. (laughs) Wait, wait, I'm sure there's a story at the Four Seasons, which was more expensive when I checked. (laughs) Well, anyway, it it is a totally fascinating and surreal story. Very well done. I recommend that everyone... uh, Read Sharon and and, uh, Jana's piece. A night at Trump's D.C. hotel, the GOP hotspot emptied by coronavirus. Uh, So check it out. And uh, Sharon, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. And come back soon. It's no secret that our world has been interrupted. A World Interrupted is a daily podcast telling stories of coronavirus and its impact on the economy. 
We want to cover the issues in the macro, global economics, the stock market, and our political climate. We'll also cover the micro stories, maybe the ones you don't hear as much about in the news or the media. We hope you'll listen and be a part of the journey. So subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We now have with us Samantha Power, former uh, United States ambassador to the United Nations, author of The Education of an Idealist, and before that, the classic book, A Problem from Hell. Samantha, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be here, Mike. So you um, recently wrote a piece in Time Magazine, and I think the New York Times, also arguing about how one lesson we need to learn from this pandemic is the need for greater engagement with the rest of the world, with international institutions, which is precisely the opposite, the argument that some in the president's camp are arguing, particularly uh, Steve Bannon and others, saying that um, COVID should spell out for us the dangers of greater globalization, citing the uh, Chinese experience and their mishandling of this. Tell us why Bannon and those arguing against globalization are wrong, in your view. Well, I think there is no going back to the 18th century. There are ways to make adjustments in the way globalization has been pursued and some of those adjustments uh, needed to be made uh, well in advance of a pandemic, uh, reminding us how dependent we are on sourcing in other countries. There, there are reasons in terms of the American workforce why progressive policy platforms are taking really different stands this time around than they were four years ago as it relates to global supply chains, as it relates to tax policy, and so forth. But we, we can't turn back the clock. We can develop more resilience you know, to disruptions of this nature, and we can pay more heed to the financial perks that corporations get when they themselves are not attentive to the health of the American workforce. I think those are things we, we should all be able to agree upon. But we are fundamentally connected. We have family ties that Stephen Miller and Donald Trump might wish didn't exist. They might wish that we weren't a country of immigrants and that we didn't have family connections all over the world. They might wish that we weren't drawing, again, manufacturing labor from the deepest recesses of the globe. Uh, they might wish that terrorists and terrorist financing didn't cross borders. They, of course, wish there's no terrorism at all, as we all do. But all of those dimensions of our current world require cooperation across borders. And I wish it were the case that you could just have sovereign member states who would find a way to solve large collection act, collective action problems by themselves. But you really need venues and institutions and networks in order to bring the key stakeholders together and, and have them pool resources for, for vulnerable parts of the world that won't be able to fend off a pandemic like this by themselves in order to um, extract commitments from even small countries that otherwise might not be at, you know, let's say a G7 table, but still have a lot to offer uh, in this context. But fundamentally, we are connected and we've got to find a way to work together. And that requires compromise within those international institutions because we don't always see 
security threats the same way. But above all, it requires cooperation. Well, Ambassador Powers, you were deeply involved in the response to the uh, Ebola epidemic. And I think a lot of people view that. I think you would probably say that that was in some ways a template for kind of multilateral action in a global health emergency. So I know that they're apples and oranges in some ways, uh, these two epidemics. But tell us how that was handled and what lessons you took away from that experience and how they might apply to the, the current crisis. Well, it's a great example of one of the points I was I was just making, which is just how we can't turn the clock back on even who our population of Americans is. I remember when Donald Trump, who was then a reality TV show host and appeared on Fox, really fear-mongering a lot around the Ebola crisis as a private citizen at that time. But one of his calls was for there to be a travel ban where people from West Africa were prohibited from coming to the United States. And when we dug into the numbers, the Department of Homeland Security dug into the numbers, it emerged that a, a huge share of the people who were coming to the United States from Liberia were dual nationals. They were Liberian Americans, and thus the legal authority that, that even a, a willing American politician would have had to keep out Americans from their own country uh, was non-existent. And it's just, again, a reminder of the, the family ties that this country of immigrants has with all parts of the world. The, what we confronted in the earliest days of the Ebola crisis was a collective action problem in international institutions where the WHO was tracking what was happening, had declared a global health emergency, but Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, the three countries most affected by uh, what would become a pandemic, they just didn't have the wherewithal to fend off of this disease themselves. And so while it'd be nice, again, if, if maybe nice in some world, if the UN just had a standing brigade of public health professionals who could just swoop into a crisis like that, that's not the world we're in. And so what ended up happening was when President Obama saw the projections that 1.4 million people could be infected within a matter of months. And this was in around August 2014 when he was shown this slide that showed this you know, huge spike in infections. And, and what that meant, of course, was that the disease would spread well beyond uh, West Africa. He said, okay, the only way we can get international institutions working as they should in the face of such a crisis is if we play team captain and it's a pickup game. Uh, so we're going to get to uh, sort of uh, decide what we're going to deploy and, and what we're going to put on the field. And then we are going to leverage what we are doing to get other countries to step up to do far more. And so as UN ambassador, and I write about this in Education of an Idealist, it was an extraordinary time. President Obama announced that the United States was going to send 3,000 health workers and troops U.S. forces to West Africa, and the troops were not there for combat. They were there to help take advantage of their incredible logistic and engineering capabilities where patients could be isolated so as to be able to practice some of the distancing and isolation that we now know because of COVID is needed uh, to bend the curve. And so the military was going, the public health professionals were going, but then Obama tapped me and Secretary Kerry and our whole uh, diplomatic arsenal to take the commitments that, that President Obama had made and then use them to extract from other countries comparable commitments so that other countries were doing their fair share. And this is really how the international system, when it works, 
has to work. There have to be the stakeholders contributing and then the stakeholders shaking the trees uh, and hustling to get other countries to do more. And so the United States ended up taking the lead in Liberia. The United Kingdom ran point in support, of course, of the West Africans above all, but they ran point in Sierra Leone. The French were the lead actor in Guinea because of their history there, complicated though that history is. And then China, which of course was just beginning to flex its muscles in 2014 and into 2015, we went to them and said, okay, you know, you want to be part of a great power relationship here. What are you going to do? How many Ebola treatment units are you going to be building? How many labs can you supply uh, so that the testing bottleneck of the kind that we see in COVID with exactly that kind of testing bottleneck as it related to Ebola but the way that we helped solve it was for uh, member states of the United Nations each to contribute some number of testing labs. The Malaysians contributed tens of thousands of rubber gloves. The Japanese looked into the hazmat suits uh, that were being used by health workers who were treating patients and tried to make those suits cooler because, of course, the suits were being what may, were being worn on the equator in some of the hottest conditions you can imagine, and, and physicians and health workers were fainting. So it was a little bit from each of the actors in the international system. Now, I don't discount the point that you make, which is how different this crisis is yeah. in light of the fact that the pandemic has spread so far, but, but the proof of concept is there. It still is going to require a pooling of resources and major powers, particularly contributing to those parts of the world where there isn't the ability to withstand this crisis alone. Right. But I, I just want to take you back to the Chinese situation here, because that is critical in terms of how the world has responded. We were, in this case, we weren't dealing with countries in West Africa, but we were dealing with a Chinese government that was concealing what it knew about the spread of the disease. That is a closed society that right in the midst of this evicted Western reporters for major publications, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post from their country so they can't report about what is going on. And a World Health Organization that was arguably not as uh, forthcoming as it should have been either. So when you're dealing with with a country like China, totalitarian country controlled by the Communist Party that is concealing what it knew. I mean, what is the appropriate response from your perspective? You're trying to get greater international engagement, but you're dealing with a country that's stonewalling what it knows about the disease within its borders. Well, I agree with your characterization of the Chinese cover-up, every word of it. And I think that one of the features of, of the response uh, that we should take note of, though, is that when the United States is absent from international institutions, there's a real loss to that. And so when the United States, for example, doesn't fill its executive board seat at the World Health Organization, or when even though we have 17 staffers who are embedded, 17 U.S. officials who are embedded at the WHO, when they are hearing from Donald Trump, you know, that the answer, the right answer is not to criticize China, that's going to have an impact on how, whether the U.S. leads and how the U.S. leads within an international organization. So to your question, Mike, I mean, I guess I come in with a kind of cynical, but, but I, I think realistic expectation that an authoritarian country like China is going to be cooking the books 
arresting and silencing critics, that a culture of fear is going to pervade. And so my job, if I'm a U.S. diplomat during a crisis like this, given China's centrality to the world's health, put huge pressure on the World Health Organization to disclose from the very beginning and to be transparent, not only about what it knows in terms of what's happening behind the Chinese border and in terms of the health crisis, but also be very transparent, as you say, about the stonewalling that's going on and use far more public pressure than was brought to bear. With the U.S. absent, the World Health Organization is kind of hustling behind the scenes, trying to negotiate access. And meanwhile, the clock is ticking and this uh, virus is spreading as the clock ticks. But for, the, for a technocrat in Geneva, and again, there's no, no, no alibi at all for World Health, Health Organization officials. There has to be accountability, I think, for the slowness of speaking out in this crisis. But it's a heck of a lot easier to jump up and down and issue a siren and, and, and that kind of alarm when the United States is itself sending the same message publicly and privately and when you know that you have the backing of powerful member states. I mean, you know, Trump has called the WHO China-centric. That's absurd. I mean, 20% of the WHO's budget is paid for, has been paid for up until this crisis by the United States, 2% by China. The reason it's China-centric, if it, if it were proved China-centric in its response to this crisis, is there's no one actually pushing back that where the United States messaging mirrored that of the Chinese government for the early critical weeks of this crisis. And so to me, it's just a reminder of how important it is within international institutions to exercise leadership on behalf of transparency, on behalf of accountability. And instead of parroting, you know, Chinese communist propaganda, which is what unfortunately the U.S. government was doing, you know, at a, at, in a very public way through President Trump's own statements, but also was doing in not urging the WHO to be more uh, vocal sooner. How do you see the kind of geopolitical fallout from this crisis? I mean, if you try to project forward, you know, obviously the destructive economic impact is likely to create instability around the world. I mean, you've got authoritarian governments and populist leaders uh, who can exploit that. China is clearly using its expanded influence uh, you know, to, you know, bringing medical supplies to countries uh, that are badly in need of it, touting its uh, so-called health silk road, and making the case that its kind of centralized authoritarian system is a a more effective model uh, when it comes to dealing with a crisis like this, which is, by the way, an easier (laughs) argument to make given, you know, the United States kind of chaotic, and some would argue feckless Uh, at least in the beginning, response. So what kind of a world do you see emerging from all of this? And and do you see any silver linings? Well, I mean, I think that COVID should not lodge in anybody's mind as an exemplar of Chinese leadership, given that this entire pandemic arguably grows out of China's mishandling, its cover-up. And indeed, so many features, problematic features of authoritarian leadership were themselves the fuel you know, that allowed this fire to spread. By contrast, if you look at governments that do rely on public health expertise and do respect science, where there's slightly less polarization in the politics, namely New Zealand, Germany, the Republic of Korea, Taiwan, I mean, you see democracies faring much, much better than China has fared in its response. And so again, to, to, 
people have talked about, you know, the the amazing speed with which China is able to isolate people and build facilities in order to manage a pandemic that had already gotten out of hand. And that's worth taking note of for sure. It's an, it's an element of the response. But, you know, again, I think you're seeing democracies that respect science where leaders uh, have legitimacy and build trust throughout the duration of the crisis, performing uh, incredibly impressively, in fact. But to your question, I mean, China is exercising leadership here of a kind in terms of its medical supplies. As you say, it's uh, Health Silk Road, which it's attempting to brand. Some of those medical supplies have been of subpar quality and, and not been of great use, but over time, I presume they'll work out those kinks. And that will be an important contribution, particularly to developing countries, you know, where tens of millions of, of uh, infections are expected by, by public health professionals and where 265 million people are at risk of severe malnutrition. Uh, and even as the head of the World Food Program put it this week, biblical famine, a biblical scale famine. So China has a huge role to play there. What you don't see from China and what I think is also an answer, at least an answer to your question, is the mobilization of global coalitions. China does its own thing for itself, you know, for its domestic political purposes. It doesn't go to the United Nations and then build a large coalition leveraging what it is doing to rally the world. That's just not, it's not a muscle it has ever exercised, and it's not a muscle it's about to exercise in this crisis. And so... Depending on what happens, of course, in the November election, what you are likely to see in the wake of this crisis is not a China-led world order as such, but China continuing to try to pick away countries, particularly those that, that have been backsliding, democratic countries that have been moving in more illiberal directions. And you will see it increasingly, again, trying to use its economic leverage and here it's public health leverage or medical supply leverage, you might call it, to get those countries to side with it in trying slowly but surely to change the international rules of the road. Now, the U.S. response to this pandemic, despite some of the, the portrayals, I think, was not endemic to U.S. culture, even to US, the U.S. political culture. The U.S. response stems from a set of choices made by a leader his name is President Trump. And each of those choices uh, has proven a deeply problematic choice. And the consequences have been not only life and death for the families affected and the individuals affected, but also devastating in terms of people around the world's understanding of U.S. competence. But it wasn't inevitable. We still have the CDC, you know, the finest domestic health core of any country on the earth. Uh, we still have diplomats fully capable of mobilizing global coalitions. We still have an intelligence community that alerted the president of the United States to this dozens of times, well before the World Health Organization uh, itself was receiving the kind of information that it was extracting painfully, uh, trying to pull out of China. So all of the infrastructure is there. And, and you know, again, with different leadership, with a leadership that values science, that values global cooperation, that is prepared also to accept responsibility and accountability when mistakes are made, you know, the United States would be very much a part of, you know, a much more proactive and much more effective uh, global response. So we are going to have an awfully big hole to dig out of in terms of just the effectiveness of our own model and, and perceptions around the world about 
whether our country is capable of managing a crisis of this nature. And, and again, every crisis in the future will come in a very different form. And so we can't fight the last war, but but I, the infrastructure has been with us throughout. And, and I think thinking through, particularly in the wake of a change of leadership here in this country, how we come out the gate and show an appreciation for all sort of slogging it out in the deep state, trying to ensure that expertise and the kind of technocratic foundation for any healthy response to any crisis, uh, you know, staying in the trenches to try to prevail. And, and even if they failed, nonetheless, they are the core of who any subsequent administration would be relying upon, but also addressing the fact that the void in the international system has not been filled. China doing taking a set of steps bilaterally is not the same as China filling that void, but it will be filled over time if the United States doesn't lead a coalition of democracies, not only to learn from this crisis, but to do a far better job acting as a block uh, in order to withstand the kind of Chinese-led world order that China would very much like to, to create mm-hmm. over time. Ambassador, you worked for uh, eight years in the uh, Obama administration, first in, uh, on the National Security Council and then as uh, UN ambassador. You undoubtedly worked closely with Vice President Biden. Can you point to a foreign policy issue where the vice president made a difference, weighed in where there were debates and tensions within the administration, and the vice president played a crucial role? I think he was the loudest and one of the most substantial voices in the room on our overall trajectory on Afghanistan. So clearly in the earliest days, you know, he was somebody very skeptical of surging troops, you know, given the underlying conditions. He was against it. He was against the, the surge. Against it. But, but if you look then at the, the ways in which having, you know, made that investment, that was the President Obama's choice and something that the vice president was, you know, sort of, I suppose you could say, not influential on in the earliest uh, days of the administration, and much more influential at that stage. But if you look then at the pace of drawdown, the emphasis on training of Afghan troops and police as a strategy for drawdown, the sort of, you might say, shrinking of ambition also over time. I think that's very much uh, the product of the vice president's influence on, on President Obama. I'd offer something from, from my neck of the woods that didn't get a lot of attention, but in, I believe it was 2014, vice president might have been two, uh, 2014, Vice President Biden uh, came to the U.N., and convened a summit of heads of state. And he basically said, look, people, you're either going to contribute to collective security by being part of uh, coalitions that take on terrorists. You're going to contribute to collective security by increasing your defense budgets. Yes, maybe. But one way that those of you who aren't going to, at that time, it wasn't about ISIS, but who aren't going to be part of the, the terrorist fight, one way you can contribute is to parts of the world that are incredibly unstable, where conflict has wrapped you know, these territories for a really long time, where there's vast humanitarian suffering, but also where extremists and others like to, to, to pray. And that is places where UN peacekeepers have deployed. And Vice President Biden chaired the summit with these heads of state, and he said, look, he said, this is what the United States does in terms of patrolling international peace and security. You all are not in as many places as, as we are, nor are you about to be. But why not show up and actually send particularly advanced militaries 
to places like Mali, to Lebanon, to South Sudan, you know, and be part of, of contributing to collective security broadly defined. And for an American vice president or president for that matter, to take up that issue, I think, showed uh, a really broad conception of where America's security interests are implicated and also recognition of what extremists do tend to exploit over time. And that summit that the vice president chaired, which then um, he basically said, let's come back in a year and you make your troop and your police and your intelligence commitments a year from now. So go scrub your books, figure out who you're going to deploy. And then President Obama came back and, and chaired the summit in which the announcements were made. That was very much the product of the vice president and his hustle uh, behind the scenes. I also worked with him on Ebola. Again, when we're trying to extract commitments from stakeholders in the international system, the same quality that we know of Joe Biden in the domestic context, the kind of backslapping, the relationships he invests in, you know, which in the case of Vice President Biden, many of them stretch back decades from his time on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's a, he was an incredible leader and an incredible colleague in terms of building those global coalitions, whether on Ebola, on ISIS, on Paris, or on this less heralded portfolio peacekeeping. Are you involved in the Biden campaign at all? You know, supportive and and here when needed, let's put it that way. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I've I've endured, I've certainly endorsed, and um, you know, it's it's no secret that foreign policy uh, before the pandemic was not exactly high on the Democratic primary agenda. Very uh, small share of questions in the debates. Very little distinguishing going on among among the candidates. And and Vice President Biden obviously came with huge structural advantages as one of the few candidates with such. Uh, a long career of experience, you know, through the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president. But we'll see now with the pandemic whether it draws attention to the kinds of questions that you're posing, and particularly how in the wreckage of this, the economic wreckage and the the health wreckage in, in light of the the rise, the, the ways in which nationalists and illiberal forces will try to take advantage of this to try to stigmatize immigrants and migrants and and fuel xenophobia, you know, for, for the vice president now uh, to be articulating a different path, um, you know, to, that plays to our better angels, that underscores the importance of domestic solidarity and global solidarity uh, precisely during a crisis, uh, rather than, you know, playing again to the fears that, that many of us are living with and that are very easy to prey upon. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to recommend to our listeners The Education of an Idealist, uh, Ambassador Powers' book about her experiences in the Obama administration. So, uh, Ambassador, thanks for being with us. Thank you both. Thanks to Yahoo News Washington Bureau Chief Sharon Weinberger and former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Samantha Power for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.